Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning into today's episode. It's been long awaited. I've wanted to, to I've wanted to record with Khalid for a while. So today we'll be looking at Islamophobia and its devastating effects across the world. I'll be talking to Khalid Beydoun, a civil rights, Islamophobia, and national security expert. There's a lot of other things to go there, and I'm sure he'll tell us a little bit about it. But what um, I really want to understand today and thoroughly is the origin and how experts across the world are trying to work towards solutions that's dealing with Islamophobia. Now, Khalid, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Sophie. I'm really excited to be on the podcast with you. So I want to start, and I think the best person to describe or give us the description of Islamophobia in today's world and what it means is you. So please, Khalid, enlighten us. And mm -hmm. from here, I want to then maybe stem into what happened in the Trump era in America and how that affected um, Muslims. Also, currently what's happening in France and previously what's happened in France, as well as the American Muslim future and maybe different events that are taking place across the Swana region. Floor is yours. No, thank you so much. Uh, so a couple of years ago, I, you know, spent a lot of time interrogating what Islamophobia means. I eventually wrote a book uh, looking to sort of deconstruct and present, um, you know, a clear definition for what Islamophobia is. Uh, and the, the, the base definition I have, the foundational definition of Islamophobia is that any expression of Muslim identity uh, is viewed through the prism of terrorism or the suspicion of terrorism. So um, if an individual has a Muslim name, the state, for instance, is gonna perceive or interpret that name through the prism of terrorism or counterterrorism. If a person engages in the expression or exercise uh, of the faith of Islam, uh, that's gonna be tied to a propensity for terrorism. So it's understanding and investigating Muslim identity uh, squarely through this prism of terrorism that gives rise to this you know, phenomenon or, you know, form of bigotry that we now understand today is Islamophobia. You know, what's interesting, um, as I said to you earlier, as Levon X, we do focus and we do have a section called the Black Arabs Collective. Now, yeah. just touching on what you said, I mean, how hard is it for Black Muslims in America today? And what type of um, situations and challenges are they facing? Phenotype, right? Racial complexion, the way, the way we look um, in terms of, you know, how we fit a specific racial or color scheme figures heavily into how we understand uh, Islamophobia and how Islamophobia is uh, deployed by, by the state, by the government. I think it's important to, um, to sort of like expand my definition of Islamophobia is that Islamophobia, Islamophobia sits on this sort of uh, foundation of Orientalism where from the vantage point of the private bigot, the individual or the state for a long time, they only understood Muslim identity uh, to be almost synonymous with Arab or Middle Eastern identity, right? Muslims look this way. They come from places like Pakistan or Lebanon or Egypt or Morocco. They don't come from places like Nigeria or South Africa um, or Kenya or Somalia. And as a consequence of, of the, you know, this sort of racialization of Muslim identity, uh, the state, historically speaking in the United States uh, especially, 
excluded black Muslim identity as a bona fide representation of uh, Islamic identity. And we saw that first, for instance, with people like Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, they were viewed to be illegitimate Muslims on account of their blackness. Now, in recent time, um, I, I would say that in the States, understanding of Muslim identity has evolved in some ways, where there is a, a greater recognition of black Muslim identity as a legitimate form of Muslim identity from the vantage point of the state, but also private, private bigots. And as a consequence of that, uh, you, you could make the claim that black Muslims face a um, intersecting form, uh, inter intersecting uh, bigotries on account of their black identity, but, but also on account of their Muslim identity, right? Kim Crenshaw talks about intersectionality and how specific individuals who occupy two or more subordinate identities have to simultaneously face distinct forms of bigotry uh, at one time. And that's true for black Muslims. Black Muslims are experiencing anti-black racism. They're also experiencing Islamophobia. Um, and the way those two things converge, one example would be uh, there was this really nefarious form of state-sponsored Islamophobia um, spearheaded by the Obama administration called Countering Violent Extremism. And the principal victims of the surveillance program were Somali Muslims, right? Black Muslims living in Minneapolis who were suspected on account of their, their Africanness, their Blackness, but also on account of their very, um, you, know, you know, entrenched, devout expression of Muslim identity. Uh, there, there are other examples. Uh, Philadelphia here in the States is home to a large uh, African-American Muslim population who, you know, simultaneously face the same kind of violent policing any African-American community faces, but also Islamophobia on account of their Muslim identity. So that's a very dangerous intersection, being Black and Muslim in the United States, and I imagine it's the same in other countries as well. Yeah, I mean, it's quite rife uh, in a lot of places, and um, <clears throat> when the whole I don't want to say event, but when it really did, did come to the media attention and it was taken over by the media, you know, when we were talking about um, Black mm -hmm. Lives Matter and we were seeing more and more and more of what was happening internationally. Now, I live in the Middle East, so there's only so much news I can get. Someone living um, in America in that area might see this every day, know about it every day, but for us, it's not something we see every day. So when that did happen, I think, you know, there was a shift in mentality. There was a shift in approach. The same thing that's currently happening with the Israel and Palestine conflict. You know, we're seeing brands like Ben and Jerry and Nike pull away. We're seeing authors speak out. So <clears throat> there is this shift that is taking place in the world currently, which should have been taking place a long time ago when these discussions were first being had. However, the day situation is, we are seeing movement. So you being an expert, been following it for so long and you know, really looked into all of these different elements that are affecting how um, Muslims or Arabs or Black Arabs or Swana, you know, related uh, citizens, how is that changing? How is the approach changing in the West? You know, how is this discourse going to evolve? And do you still feel there is a long road ahead or we're having the last couple of years, things changed faster? Yeah, there's a lot of movement, but the movement isn't, uh, you know, unidirectional, right? It, it's a complex sort of phenomenon with regard to Islamophobia in the States right now. 
Um, and, and if I can be, if I can provide you with a nuanced sort of explanation, uh, what I tell you is Islamophobia under the Trump moment uh, received recognition as being a sort of principal social or racial justice issue, but it felt temporary, right? I think what we're noticing now um, is a retrenchment of progress with regard to Islamophobia. And let me tell you why. I think the United, I think in the United States, Americans need a very sort of explicit villain to attach um, their understanding of racial bigotry. And as soon as Trump was voted out of office, people stopped caring about Islamophobia. He sort of was relegated, you know, among um, the menu of racial justice concerns at the very top. Right now, um, there's very little discussion about uh, Islamophobia in mainstream spaces. You can turn on the news, for instance, very little discussion, even though there's considerable concern in the states and beyond about what's happening with regard to discrimination toward Muslims. A couple of days ago, we had an arson um, at the Islamic Center in, in Washington, right? Uh, direct bigotry. We have anti-Sharia legislation still proliferating within American states. Um, and the reason that is, is, I mean, the sad reality and the reason I have a more sort of sobering outlook is that two reasons. First, Islamophobia remains in the United States a unacceptable form of bigotry. You're not going to get considerable reprimand if you make a bigoted statement towards Muslims. In fact, uh, there might be political incentive or reward, especially if you're a right-wing politician, if you say something Islamophobic. Um, it's still a very potent political tactic that many politicians use. So it's acceptable in ways that anti-Semitism is. It's, it's acceptable in ways that homophobia or even anti-Black racism um, isn't in the United States. Um, second, the left in the United States is becoming more suspicious of Muslims in addition to the right, right? Uh, what we're noticing on the left in the United States is in the same way that uh, leftist movements across the world uh, is greater suspicion of religion, um, a, a greater sort of, uh, a greater acceptance of secularism and even agnosticism and atheism. And as a consequence, uh, of these ideologies being prominent amongst the left, that is generating more suspicion of religion at large, including Islam. So um, Islamophobia is sort of like in this very difficult liminal space where it doesn't have a home and it doesn't have uh, sustainable allyship uh, across the political spectrum, um, which makes it hard to navigate where we're going moving forward um, in the United States, but also I think globally. I mean, you can look at what's happening in France or India uh, and make similar assessments. Uh, what, what what is your opinion on this currently? I mean, it's it seems to have uh, really kicked off. You know, we know France always comes out and decides to say something. Has received yeah. a lot of backlash in the past. I mean, there's no point going and listing. Everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about. And yeah. currently, the posts that you're putting on, um, up in India now, and and we and you've just mentioned the left to me and how they're a little bit. So, so as much as I wanted to believe there was a light at the end of the tunnel, listening to what you're saying now, we're possibly still in the same dark situation. I don't think it's the same dark situation. I think it's a new gray situation, <laughs> that makes any sense. So I think, I think there's been positive movement since 10 years ago, right? The direct aftermath of 9-11 when it was very dark, right? I think now, for instance, there's there's sort of like token reason or token symbols for optimism. And we see that through the election of specific um, politicians in the United States. We see it through 
a greater prominence of uh, Muslim Americans in high-ranking media, uh, corporate, and government context in the United States. Uh, and we see that through sort of this, you know, a broader discourse and understanding about what Islamophobia is. Like you can walk down the street and talk to a Christian white American and they have an understanding of what Islamophobia is. That wasn't the case 10 years ago in the United States. Nobody cared about Muslim civil rights 10 years ago. I can tell you I was in the thick of things and I'd go to meetings and nobody, it wouldn't be on our radar, on their radar. I think today what's happening is, um, people don't know where to situate Muslims within uh, the, the broader political spectrum uh, for a number of reasons. And I think, I think France is a prescient example because France is a, is a, is a place where uh, the government enshrines secularism, right? The, the government essentially looks at the state as being a secular state and weaponizes secularism um, to crack down on Muslim rights. And what's really I think the analogy you can draw between France and the United States is in the United States, this country is built on the black, uh, the back of the genocide of Native Americans and built on uh, this broader structure of anti-blackness that has persisted for so long. In France, you can also claim that modern France has built, been built on the, the back of Orientalism and demonizing and vilifying uh, Arabs and Muslims to sort of you know, create the modern sort of construction of what French identity looks like or should look like. So what's happening in France now is that everybody on the political spectrum is Islamophobic. It's just a question of degree, right? You have uh, the, the National Front, for instance, which their entire political identity was to run on an Islamophobic and xenophobic platform. They're now the center. Like Marine Le Pen is now <laughs> the center, the political center in France. You got even more uh, fringe individuals like this Eric Zamor guy saying he wants to ban all Muslim names and ban all Arab names, you know, upping the ante on what the National Front has done. And Emmanuel Macron, who has said some horrible things about the Muslim world, right? Um, he's the most um, liberal and progressive voice uh, on Islam and Muslim identity in France. So that that's a telling sort of um, reflection of how sad the state is in a place like France. I, I think it's just sad in general, but I mean, uh, we can say that uh, there has been some repercussions to Macron <laughs> in yeah. the last days. In, it, in the last days, so I mean, I don't really know how I feel. You know, I, I'm just trying to to see this from an open perspective and try to understand, you know, is this a game? Is this a strategy? Is this really an agenda? Is this really how people feel? You know, is this actual behavior of the masses? So, I mean, there's so many questions that go through your head when things like this become the headline of stuff, you know, like even with Israel and Palestine, this happens every day. And then suddenly we went through three weeks where suddenly the whole world decided to be pro-Palestinian and, you know, sympathize with the Palestinian cause. But this, this isn't something that, that just happened. The reason why I went into journalism was because of Israel and Palestine. You know, there's a, there's a reason for us as, as people that lived in the Middle East and have seen how Palestinians yeah. suffer with having a laissez-passer or um, just a paper that gets them from one place to another. My cousin married a Palestinian man. She's Lebanese. He, he doesn't have a passport and she can't pass on the citizenship. So, I mean, there are so many things that have happened in the world. And I was talking to a, a really top producer in Europe and they wanted to do a story on Lebanon. And I, and I did mention the fact that women can't pass on the citizenship. Again, what? 
we've never heard this before. Well, this is not new. So, you know, from your expert opinion, why do you think these highs on the media happen and then suddenly complete and utter silence? I mean, this yeah. is related. This is propaganda. This is related to some sort of strategy. Do you not believe? And I think this is where maybe the average consumer of media might be mm. consistently led down, you know, the yellow brick road. Yeah, well, you know, we're, we're living at a time where, number one, uh, the individual's attention span is very short. So we, we see high, you know, high points and climaxes and concern about a specific issue for two or three days. But then when the news cycle shifts to a new story, um, that commitment to that issue sort of dissipates. So that's just the way, I mean, the sad reality is that social media has accelerated the news cycle and individual interest in specific issues far more, to, a, to a rate that is far more rapid uh, than any other point in, in, in history. So that that's one issue. The second issue is the way that uh, there's a great book by a woman named Shoshana Zuboff. It's called Surveillance Capitalism. And it sort of talks about how, you know, you know, algorithms drive uh, the way these social media platforms function and um, in the way that algorithms are set up in ways to sort of disseminate propaganda and, and sort of like lead us down these um, story-based lines that eventually become more and more extreme the more and more you watch the more and more you stay on Facebook, the more and more you watch YouTube, um, which, short, which, which, which has a propaganda effect in the sense that if you're watching the same video that has the same theme, that's entrenching ideas that you already have in your head before. So it's this, it's this twofold phenomenon of the, so the, the news cycle becoming far more rapid and the, the modern news cycle being based on algorithms that drive towards propaganda. Um, in a book, another book I recommend that's tied to what I'm talking about that is linked to racism um, specifically is a, a great book by Sophia Noble called The Algorithms of Oppression and how algorithms are designed um, in some respects to entrench anti-Black racist views when it comes to specific issues or to entrench white supremacy or to entrench Islamophobia. That's why you see on platforms like Twitter or Facebook or even Instagram um, I put a post on uh, India last night, you know, linking Hindu supremacy to terrorism. And I got like hundreds of hundreds of hate mail this morning from Hindu supremacists. And a lot of that's based on an algorithm in which they, they get to see my posts on, um, on Instagram. So these algorithms make it where uh, it's easy to, to allocate and entrench propaganda. Would you like to maybe call it modern day brainwashing? <laughs> Oh, definitely. And it, and it has a corporate objective, right? Because yeah. the, the aim of all these platforms, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, is to make us stay on their platforms for as long as possible, right? And they get to maximize their, their economic bottom lines by making us stick to their platforms for as long as possible. I think what's interesting to know is, is, is the way people are listening to you now and, and even your confession to the hate mail that you received um, this morning. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of people that, that tend to want to go down certain roads and be opinionated, but are consistently scared of what type of backlash or um, even being mentally affected by, you know, the criticism that could come your way. Now, yeah. you, are, you have always discussed topics that um, do surround itself with a lot of challenges, conspiracies, you know, and, and, and people have gone into deep 
I want maybe even delusions and and how how have you dealt with that you know how is how's that been challenging you know have you found yourself at times thinking why am I doing this you know I think I think it is challenging but I I'm sort of grounded by two sort of drivers that drove me to want to become an academic. The, the, the first is I understand that I occupy a very privileged position being a, essentially a diaspora intellectual. I'm an, I'm an Arab, my mom's from Egypt, my dad's from Lebanon. Uh, I live in the States, um, which extends to me a lot of privilege in that the kind of danger I'll experience for saying what I say is not the same as somebody in Lebanon or somebody in Cairo or somebody in Mogadishu or somebody in uh, Delhi, right? So I understand my privilege in knowing that um, being, where I, being where I'm from, there's, there's a safety that individuals of those countries won't have. The second is I've always, I wouldn't wanna be an academic um, if I wasn't able to sort of extend my ideas and views to a, to a broader audience, right? A general audience. I'm not interested in writing books or academic articles that only other academics read. For me, my heroes have always been people like Edward Said and James Baldwin and Kimberly Crenshaw and Noeta Sadawi, like thinkers and intellectuals who um, were really keen and um, intentional about making their work accessible to people who didn't go to college or might have dropped out of school um, or don't have a fancy degree. So, and if I wasn't doing that, then I wouldn't, I would, I would leave academia and do, I'd become a sports agent or do something fun. Because <laughs> you know, being a journalist that this work isn't always fun. So we, we gain fulfillment through other channels. I definitely relate what, to what you're saying. And you know, I just just you mentioning Edward Said took me all the way back to my master's dissertation uh, in journalism. My whole dissertation was about Orientalism in the media. So, and I'm sitting talking to you now. Um, I know, twelve I gotta, years later, got, thirteen years later, and I'm still having the same discussion. <laughs> well, I got a surprise for you. You probably you probably remember this book. I do. I do. I read all of them. Um, I, I absolutely love Edward Said and I'm so glad you brought him up because we do need to give him a shout out, you know, and, and he's done so much and he's enlightened us to so much. And a lot of us, you know, in this age range um, did change our mentalities by listening to him, his interviews and learning from his books. Now, since we're talking about him, I think uh, I need to pick your brain a bit. We need to go away from the Islamophobia topic. And I'd really like to touch on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that's currently taking place, especially with the new prime minister that's taken over, who a lot of us, when we saw come in, scared us. So yeah. as times are going, um, I, obviously I mentioned before, I am in Beirut, so it's a daily, we hear the planes above our heads. Um, and in the last 48, 72 hours, it's been severely intense. So I know things are happening on both sides, whether it be Syria or Palestine. Um, could you give us your opinion as to what Israel is trying to do Currently, I mean, a lot of things have been taking place over the last couple of months, and it just seems to be intensifying. Yeah. But none of us really understand the agenda. What's your opinion? 
I think the broad the broader objective of whatever government is in place in, in Israel is to eat away as much Palestinian land as possible, right? And I think that an unstable Lebanon um, enables two things: it it, it provides a you know a, a sort of regional uh, smokescreen that enables Israel to expand and accelerate the settlements within Israel uh, to continue its uh, you know, violent impunity and crackdown on the Palestinian people in Gaza and in the West Bank, uh, but also to use Hezbollah um, and instability in Lebanon at large as a justifier to engage in whether it's direct war in Lebanon. I grew up in Lebanon during the civil war for two years. I was there from 86 to 88. So I remember uh, planes and bombs above, um, you know, really vividly from my childhood. Um, so yeah, so that's that's the objective of, of Israel, I think, is um, to really use whatever means it has at its disposal to eat away at Palestinian land as much as possible and to bring in as many settlers as possible. One thing that's happening in the States that is worth mentioning, though, is um, sympathy and solidarity with the Palestinian people is, is expanding considerably, right? Um, resistance against... Um, I'm sorry, uh, support for uh, the boycott movement, for instance, is expanding. Uh, I did an event a couple of weeks ago with a Students for Justice of Palestine group in Florida. And what was really sort of an aha moment for me when I spoke at that event is only two of their 50 members were Arab or Muslim. The remaining members of the organization were Black, White, and Latinx. Which to me was crazy, right? Because 15 years ago, any organization that is involved with Palestine would be predominantly Arab, maybe some Muslims, and that's it. But to me, that was a real sign of how universal the Palestinian struggle had come um, with this, the broader civil rights and human rights struggle, which is different, right? I think that what is more, op there, there's, a, there's greater optimism with regard to the right uh, or the movement for Palestinian self-determination and rights than there is for Islamophobia, in my opinion, from the previous conversation we had. Yeah, I can definitely agree on that front, um, completely agree with you on that front. And that's why I sort of wanted to have this discussion because we're watching these different behaviors, you know, worldwide behaviors that are taking place and things are to tend to gain more traction when different things are, are um, pinned to it. So if Nike is going to pull out or Ben and Jerry's is going to pull out, you know, you'll find a lot more people thinking, oh, this is something I need to pay attention to and yeah. I'm going to find more sympathy here. But with Islamophobia, you don't really necessarily can align a product to that that can maybe shift a mentality faster than your work and books and, and, and understanding, you know, journalistic interviews as to how deep, seeded this is and seriously needs to change um a lot of us were worried i mean my dad is muslim my mom is christian uh growing up in the gcc i was constantly asked are you muslim or are you christian mm. i don't know i couldn't answer the question i was young i it wasn't even something that i had even managed to process myself what was a muslim what was a christian what is the difference you know yeah. um and I was always men made to feel I was outside unless I chose a side. And I think with me, it sort of pushed me even further away from wanting to choose any side because I was like, 
both of you <laughs> are being mean to me you know this I'm, we're talking from a child's perspective like why why would I why you know why like I'm safer here right so it, it's it and you said it before it's tend to you it's tend to, to be used to sort of shift opinion when necessary in an agenda or a direction now we consistently mm -hmm. see polarization in America whether you're you're a Democrat or you're a Republican or you're this or you're that or you're this or you're this or you're um, pro-COVID vaccinations or you're if you're not, you're anti-vax. I mean, why can't we all just be questioning and learning and understanding and making, you know, a valid um, and educated decisions, you know, mm -hmm. instead of being consistently spearheaded by a media agenda or a social media trend. I mean, how does one battle this to be able to get through the noise to actually make a difference? I don't know if you're gonna have the answer to this question because as, as a storyteller and content creator, I don't, but I think you know it's interesting to put that out there because I think that's a, lot, a, a question on a lot of people's minds. Yeah, I think the sad realities in the state, I mean, I think the states compared to the other parts of the world, UK, Canada, um, we're less um, educated in a more emotional population where people are driven more by hysteria and political demagoguery than they are actually uh, make, rather than making informed decisions. And you see that with politics, you see that with, uh, like you said, the, the, the polarization with regard to the vaccine. People aren't spending the time to think. People aren't spending the time to do their due diligence or, or research. And I think a lot of that's a reflection of the times. I think, I, you know, for me, I often think about, um, you brought up Edward Said, right? I grew up at a time where we had sort of intellectual leadership and guidance that were able to sort of um, distill specific issue for us, for, uh, distill specific issues for us, make them clear, and then present us with that information so we can make assessments based on that. We're living at a time where we have no intellectuals. We're living at a time where we don't have that intellectual guidance uh, coming from individuals. We're being led by, sad to say, um, media outlets with corporate interests. Or Jeff um, Bezos and Elon Musk, Elon billionaires. Musk, <laughs> billionaires. Or third, and even more um, disenchantingly in some ways, influencers with huge followings who take positions without fully understanding what it is they're talking about, you know? Um, and making conclusions without fully understanding or dedicating themselves to how they got to that conclusion. Um, so it's easy for young people, for late people, for people who work all day long, who don't have the luxury like you and I to think about these issues, um, to fall victim to hysteria and conspiracy theory and conforming to what their uh, favorite influencer or thinker believes um, and then running in that direction. So it, it's a really dangerous time in that way. And I think there, that's why there's a need for intellectual leadership uh, in a way that we had before in the past. I think what's interesting to see, and we are going to wrap this up because we've been on here a while, but what's interesting to see is that the leaders coming out today are not um, leaders that we would look up to, but we do look up to. They're, they're younger than us, um, maybe by generations. And they're the ones that are screaming and speaking. Those are the the leaders yeah. that we have today um, and trying to break through uh, 
the noise that they grew up with, you know, and trying to find a voice. So I think it's really interesting to have these discussions, especially when a lot of experts and academics say, yeah, yeah, I'm not talking about you here. <laughs> things we've seen on the media um you know how can we put our faith and trust or how can we sit and listen to this child or why do you give airtime to Malala or you know Greta you know why they, what type of value um are they giving the basic fact is when you're talking to the masses the larger words you use the most likely they will cut off and they won't understand or process what you're saying so listening to um, faces like the younger generation they're talking directly at you from a place of you know simpleness and innocence and the fact that this is happening this is a fact and I think we all know that sometimes when we sit with children we end up laughing because the way that they honestly decide to tell you things is so harsh and abrupt and at the same time, you can't even be offended <laughs> by them. So yeah. I think we do have some leaders today. I'm not going to call them large academics with you know, portfolios of information, but they are talking about facts. They can find facts faster than we could in our age when we, were, we didn't have the access they do to information. You know, we had to spend months or days going through different books or the library to be able to sort of come up with some opinion. So uh, I'd like to first just say thank you to them and uh, thank you to you for being with us today and, and, and sharing this information. Mm -hmm. I know it's out there, but uh, listening to you convey it, um, it's easier to take on board, understand and digest. And I think, you know, with this platform and others, you know, there's so many people that are really trying to break the noise and um, you are one of them. So you are one of our leaders too, Khalid. You know, there, there are people out there. We just need to pick and choose and be selective as to what is, do you know, guiding our algorithm. <laughs> no, th th thanks so much. And thanks, th thanks so much for the work that you do. I really appreciate this platform and, uh, you know, bringing to light the concerns and the issues that the platform, the podcast brings up. Khaled, I just have one more thing to say to my audience, then I just want to give you back the microphone. I'd just like to remind everybody that Levon X is a crowdfunded um, platform. We do develop content and articles for what you would like to hear and listen to. And so do hit us up on our DMs with any questions. I'm sure Khalid will be happy to answer any that you've got going his way as well. But he is extremely active. I'm sure he'll answer your questions <laughs> through a post. So everybody, if you would like to continue listening to this podcast and Levant's X's content, please head to the donate button on the Levant X page. Khalid, last thing, you do have the attention of the audience you can leave them with anything today. So the floor is yours. Yeah, thank you so much. So support Levantex, uh, go to their page and donate to this platform. Uh, that's what you should do. Follow them on uh, all social media platforms. And no, I think what I'll leave the audience with is, um, you know, we're living during very exciting but dangerous times that whatever it is you're passionate about, be sure to research it thoroughly. Be sure to know it really well before you draw any conclusion. And uh, yeah, follow me on social media at Khalid Begum. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Sophie.